0: Hello, and welcome to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. And in today's episode, you're actually going to hear a discussion from my 20th business school reunion. As you know, Lindsay Mead and I have been conducting a series of podcast interviews with members of our class. And for our 20th virtual reunion, which actually took place earlier this month, we assembled a class panel with three distinguished panelists. Stéphane Bancel, who is the CEO of Moderna, the company that has the farthest along COVID-19 vaccine. Sherry Hubert, Associate Dean of Admissions at Fuqua Business School at Duke University. And Krista Quarles, who is a board member of Kimberly-Clark and was formerly the CEO of OpenTable. This was a very long and very productive discussion. We talked about the pandemic, the vaccine, as well as something that was very fresh in our minds, the events surrounding the death of George Floyd and the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement. So I hope you'll enjoy this discussion. And please, if you like this podcast, subscribe, provide five-star reviews on Apple, and tell your friends about it. Without further ado, the Harvard Business School Class of 2000 20th Reunion Panel. (laughs) All right, everyone, welcome to the Class of 2000 Harvard Business School Virtual Reunion Panel. We want to thank everyone for taking time out of their busy days to be here. I want a quick reminder, this is actually being done as just a giant Zoom meeting. So please remember to mute yourself in case your lovely dogs start to bark or your kids start to yell or what have you. Uh, But don't worry, when it comes time to Q&A, we'll give people a chance to unmute themselves And ask their questions. So obviously, the reason we've put together this class panel is given the fact that we can't see each other in person. It's so difficult for us to actually have a chance to see each other across sections. So we felt that a class panel would really allow us to go across multiple sections, get a sense of what's going on in the world, and then lead in naturally to the cross section time that comes in after this. So with this panel, I want to first of all thank my partner in crime, Lindsay Mead. Lindsay, can you just say hello and welcome people a bit?
1: Hi everybody, thanks for joining us. These are, I, th- I, I did think that if I ever heard the word unprecedented, again, I might be nauseous, but I did like what the three words that they used at the beginning of this morning, which were unprecedented. I can't remember them because I can't remember anything, but unprecedented, uncertain and unsettling or something. So it's really, I think, for me at least seeing everybody that is familiar matters more than ever right now so thank you
0: so this particular event is also a live version a very modified version but a live version of the podcast that lindsay and i have been doing to help keep you guys caught up on what your classmates have been doing we will continue this it wasn't something that we're going to just stop now that the reunions happened so if you're still interested in sharing your story or if there are classmates that you'd really love to hear from please continue to reach out to Lindsay and I, and we're gonna restart the process of recording those podcasts uh, after this reunion as well. So for this reunion, so glad to have three amazing panelists who are able to give us insights from very different perspectives on the situation we face right now. And what I'm gonna ask each of them to do is to go ahead and introduce themselves, give a quick summary of their life after HBS and what they're doing now. So if one of our three esteemed panelists would like to volunteer to go first, that would be excellent. Sherry's volunteered. Sherry, go
2: ahead. Use that little nice little like hand rise, right, Chris? (laughs) Well, hello everyone. Wow, this is really amazing and so well needed, so timely. Um, Appreciate being invited to sit on this panel, I'm honored. And it's really nice to be reconnected with so many classmates, folks that I knew really well, folks that I'm getting to know and just and hopefully will continue to develop relationships with. So I am sitting here in lovely Durham, North Carolina. I moved here about three years ago. I worked for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and entered the higher ed, been in the higher ed space now for about almost eight years. Moved here from Washington, D.C., and I'm the associate dean of admissions. And so, as you can imagine, this has been quite an interesting time in the higher education um, industry. And so I'm looking forward to that conversation. So before the, I was really fortunate, I used to travel a lot. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about my job. And I would see many of you on my travels. And so I miss you dearly and hope to get back to that. I am in the midst of celebrating my 50th year on this earth. And I was fortunate enough before the lockdown to be able to um, fulfill one of my bucket lists and in and, and step foot on every continent. So I was able to travel to Antarctica uh, right back right in the end of February. So right before the turmoil started. So that was that's kind of the biggest thing that's happened um, this year, at least aside from what's happening now. And so I'm really excited to be with you and I think I'll stop it there.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Sherry which of you, look, Chris, is you already unmuted yourself, you go next.
3: I'll, I'll try and go next. Um, again, it's, it's, a, it's an awesome experience to be in front of all of you. Um, grad, You know, after graduation, spent 10 years on Wall Street and the last five, I spent leading a company called Open Table, which has obviously had a very difficult time in COVID but left about a year ago and I'm uh, on the journey for the next thing. But I also sit on a couple of boards, one of them, uh, is Kimberly Clark, who um, is making toilet paper, so uh, very important, uh, essential service in these trying times during COVID. Uh, but I also sit on a uh, one of the founder from PayPal's Max Levchin's board, um, a firm which is you know trying to provide loans to consumers. So with forty million unemployed Americans, that's also an interesting time. I've got uh, two small boys. We're keeping super active. Uh, as you guys know, I, I married John Quarles, who is an ex-Navy SEAL. So he's got us with lacrosse, hockey, basketball, soccer, other things going on in the house. So staying super active and and trying to um, really imagine and, and re- rethink about what the future is going to look like uh, here in 2020. Because I think it's Given us a lot of time and space to take a breath and rethink what we want for ourselves.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. And by the way, in our section Zoom, I remember you were telling me that apparently John has constructed like a different obstacle course every week. And he actually has you run the obstacle course and time you so the boys can feel good by beating their mom.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's great. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> By process of Elimination, that leaves us with one of the busiest men in the world. If you could take it away, please.
4: Yeah. Hey, guys. It's really wonderful to see so many faces. Brings back so much memory. Uh, so after HBS, um, moved to the UK. I worked for Lily. Uh, met with Brenda. Uh, we became my wife, who Cindy Gayton uh, introduced me to with two little girls, she they used to be little, 16, 17, so not so little, um, Chloe Olivia. Uh, actually, it's funny how small a world it is because uh, Chloe, my old one, uh, was a classmate from Lindsay's daughter uh, here in Boston. Brad, yeah. Uh, yes. Um, so worked in the UK at Lily even, uh, went to Biomarieux Diagnostic Medical Company to run it in 2006. And in 2011, uh, after a lot of soul searching, I decided to jump from that uh, fun job to start Moderna as employee number two. The technology came from Harvard and been building the company since then. Uh, There are a few partnerships with a few pharma companies. And we've been involved in infectious disease, in cancer, rare genetic disease, and cardiology, and and recently autoimmune disease.
0: Now, you are going to mention the fact that you are providing doses of COVID-19 vaccine to every member of the class, right? That was our agreement.
4: Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> That's not the <a> problem. <laughs> I'm not sure everybody is first in line. I think we're going to start with healthcare care workers uh, and the elderly. But yes, when it turns to our age c- category, yes.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Lindsay, why don't you get us started with the discussion?
1: So um, obviously, very much to talk about in a limited amount of time but we were hoping that the three there were as I described to all of you, we we're hoping you could comment on the world today, which is obviously um, disorienting to say the least. but in particular to start I think we'd be interested in the three of your experience of and perspective on the most recent um, protesting and police brutality issues within the US and globally
5: actually.
4: I think it's sorry, Sherry, ladies first. Oh,
5: ahead,
0: oh you want me to, Okay. Everyone is so polite. Somebody to sees the reins.
2: Well, it's such a, it's such a lofty topic, I think. And, you know, speak, as an African-American woman, I, I have a lot of emotions. Um, it's been a really rough week and a couple of weeks, um, we at the university our president put out our you know um, an email our dean did i did and made it very personal um we are starting to take a look at in terms of what we can do at the university level that is tactical right and that um is meaningful but you know i'm 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 tired i'm frustrated i am i'm empathetic too i understand why we're seeing the the, the protests and the um, unrest this is not just about a couple of incidences and, and killings this is about years and years and years of uh, systemic racial injustices and so I'm really hopeful cautiously hopeful that this is not just another um, phase that you know you know our, our media tends to direct us to where the next biggest you know area of, of interest is uh, society and this happens to be it now. I'm hoping that that this will not just be a fad and that there will be true um, meaningful change. It is um, I think for me personally I'm trying I'm struggling with what can I do as an individual and then as a collective so I was um, really fortunate just to, to be invited to sit on the board of our Harvard Business School African American Alumni Association and we are developing a community engagement task force. And we just sent out a poll to all of our members, trying to understand what what's really important to them. You know, there's all kinds of areas within this space that we can focus on. You know, economic um, empowerment, you know, social justice, criminal reform. I mean, there, you name it. There's so many different aspects of of all of this culminating. And so we will work to see what we can do as individuals, as a collective. I do think that our business school, us as individuals, leaders, we have a huge opportunity to play a meaningful role in making true systemic change. Um, and it starts with us as individuals, as parents, as managers, as leaders, as people, you know, impacting other human beings, other lives. Um, I, I do think that there's a huge role for HBS to play and I'm really hoping that not only our, our African-American Association Alumni Association will do something, but the school and each of you Um, I think, as well, doing your part.
4: Thanks, Sherry. Um, I mean, like everybody totally uh, in a state of not understanding what's going on, Uh, the brutality, believing that we're in 2020 and somebody can be arrested and brutalized in such a way, just, it's, I cannot understand it. And then the racism, um, you know, we're in 2020, as I grew up, I always thought, you know, it was the older generation, you know, our parents. their generation, they don't get it. And, you know, turn the clock and, we're, you know, I'm 48. And this is happening in our generation, kind of adults, our age, are doing stuff like that. And I just don't understand it. I mean, you know, I had a chance to grow up, you know, in a city in the south of France, where it was very diverse, you know, people from you know Africa, friends from, you know, Lebanon and Iran. You know, I had four wonderful years in Asia, where I got the chance to just discover different cultures and just realize the the beauty in differences, the growth in differences, and and I cannot understand that in this day and age, the the, the color of somebody's skin matter means anything. Yeah, I just I just don't understand it.
3: Um, I'll 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 a few things i mean i think first of all like you know my my heart just bleeds and aches for the families involved you know it just it it just is so painful and you know i would say i can't begin to pretend to understand you know the, the, the 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 frustration the anger the exhaustion of being in and being part of you know the the systemic racism that has frankly plagued our country for 400 years, um, I have had some glimpses. You know, I spent a lot of my time um, when I was running Open Table talking about women and leadership and sexism. And so, while racism is not sexism, I feel like it has provided some clues in terms of you know where where what to do, what to think about. And I think one of the things that um, I felt very strongly on was, you know, making sure that, that men were just as much as part of the the the, the solution as, as women. And, and you know, my view is always we could get, you know, we're never gonna get 100 percent of women to be on board. So we could get 98% of women, we'll still have 49% of the population, we're not gonna make the movement. And, and I think the key is to get the majority of people to be in a position to care. And so I think one of the things that we always start about, which is have and tell your story. Find someone to tell stories around because I think the stories begin to create narrative that then create an empathy, that then give people another space and and I think the stories in the process of that is messy. It's super messy and if we demand perfection at the outset, we're not going to be successful. Um, but I'll you know kind of go to the to, to to where Sherry was around hope. I was on a call with Condi Rice this week and you know she talked about how you know in, in the Alabama she grew up in you know the idea that a that a black man died at the hands of a white officer in the line of duty wouldn't even make front page news, and here we are. And I think that you know the the quote the, you know King, it's you know the arc of the moral universe is long. It's really long, but it's bending. And I see that in you know the fact that you know companies are now looking at the diversity of their boards and saying we've got to make change. This is not okay. And and the the world is demanding it of them. And I think that's the piece that gets me super excited. And so, you know, I look about, you know, we're an incredible powerful, influential, you know, we have financial influence, we have, we have personal influence, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, how do we get involved and and how do we, you know, there's elections coming up, obviously. And so what is the power around our vote? What is the power around our voice? What is the power around our balance sheet? And how do we put it in place to actually make lasting change? And there's gonna be dips along the way and you'll get frustrated, but um, I think the the opportunity is here and to to, to take it and make sure that many of us are engaged and, and thankfully outra- ra- outraged as part of this process. And, and I'm just hopeful and excited that this is the beginning of a long lasting change that we can hopefully see.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, um, I think we need collective voices. I think for anyone who is is African American, Black, um, you know, of African diaspora descent, like you've, you've felt it, you have, I, I said in my message to our law our students, I have a father, a brother, I have uncles, right, I have cousins who experience this every day. But for individuals who may not understand, um, who can sympathize but not empathize, then education, awareness, you know, creating more allies. We need more collective voices to stand up and to speak out, to speak up. Um, and, to, and to be relentless in this effort, right, so that it is so that it is sustainable. And I love what you say, Krista, around using all those tools that we have at our disposal um, to to create true impact. Um, there's Trevor Noah. I don't know, if, you know how many of you guys follow the Daily Show, but can I tell you guys if you guys are look if there are folks who are trying to understand the context of the in the history and why this is so fundamentally hurtful and painful for uh, for a race of people, he does an excellent job of breaking it down um, in a recent video that he did for The Daily Show. So I would highly recommend that you take a look at it. I'll try and chat it, the link in the video. But he really gives a really great and very prolific overview and context of all the issues and why um, there is so much outrage, I would say, at this point.
3: I think him having watched the end of apartheid and, and what, you know, what was going on in the streets and he does talk about this idea that it had to be kind of a mass movement, unfortunately, you know, blacks only make up 13% of the population and so you you, you need everybody to be outraged. And I think we're, we're, you know, hopefully marching in that direction. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think we're going to get disappointed. So that's where it's like, how do we continue to maintain the effort and the energy and the momentum here? And I think it is, you know, in, in all of these situations, like how do we demand that our boards are more diverse, that our companies are more diverse? And by the way, I, I'm a big believer that this isn't just like some Pollyanna-ish, kind of like it's the right way for the world. It's actually better for our companies. We get better results when we have more diversity in them. And so I think it's it's not just the right moral thing to go, I think it's the better thing in terms of the outcomes that we can all expect um, inside our companies.
0: Fantastic. And I will say that, you know, as you've noted in the chat, Um, If you have questions, feel free to either send them to everyone or to send them to me and we'll do as much as we can. One of the things I'm struck by during this time is that when we were at HBS, we labeled ourselves literally with these shirts that said leaders of the new millennium on them. And here we are in the new millennium and we are at the point in our lives when we can be leaders, when we can speak out. And part of this is also uh, making sure that in addition to speaking out on our own behalf, that as the expression goes, those who can't sing can hand the microphone to those who do. Uh, and it's important not to just automatically force your friends who are African American to speak for everyone, which is something that is always very difficult. It's an individual choice. But if you seek out other people's stories, if you seek to listen, and more importantly, if you share those stories with other people, take advantage of the relationships and trust that you have to express things to to others, I think we can make a difference. So uh, one of the questions, even though we're gonna deviate a little bit from our original script, I was about to pivot to the pandemic, but I feel like we just have to stay here for a second because Bruno asked this question that is driving a discussion in the chat room right now, which is, have we reached a tipping point? Is this moment different? How do people feel about this? So I'll open it up to members of the panel. Do you feel like this is different or not?
4: I hope so. Uh, I'm not sure 100%, but I do hope so that we are at a place, like Bruno said, that it's just so much, and even for so long, that there's enough critical mass that just make the whole thing tilt over. I really do hope so. And we need to find a way for us to all help this still just push it the other side.
2: I think what's different, so for, for those of you who have who have, who are, who have been in this space for a while, um, you know that these things have happened. They happen daily, right? They happen in all the all of our communities on a daily basis. Um, and they go unchecked. I think what is different is that we do have social media. We do have more pe- people actually taping these things. And so you're seeing it, you know, for the first time, many people are seeing this, even though others of us know that this happens, all has, has been happening all the time. So I think that's different, right? I do think that there is a bit of a tipping point, but I think it only will persist if we as individuals um, demand that it persists and and do our, do our part. Um, you know, I think that the protests have led to the charges. Like, I, it's interesting, I would be interested to know what people think if if all four of those officers would have been charged, if there was nothing, no rioting, no protest, no nothing, right? Because this stuff happens all the time. With Amar Aubrey, it took a few months, right? And so having the right prosecutor in place. I mean, we need people of, 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 um, of influence to, to have the decency and to wanna to do the right thing. Um, and so I I, th- I do think someone put in the chats, it comes to you know, voting, right? We need the right leaders. We need to all make our voices heard at the polls. Um, I do think that our leadership currently at the White House level is um, giving voice or lending voice and credibility to those who have always had racist views, and so we're seeing it. We're seeing it bubble up, right? And in some instances, people may say, "Well, it's I'm glad that it's not as you know hidden," but others, but it's it's very de- detrimental to our society if it continues to. Perpetuate. Right. And I think it's not just racist. It's it's um, nationalist views. Right. I mean, we see Just our entire um, Country um, Or others outside of our country. Those of us are classmates from outside of the US. I'm embarrassed to be an American citizen at this point. It is. It's horrendous what's happening um, In the threats to immigration. And um, so, you know, I think that we have voice. We have collective voice at the polls and um, I do think that this is a tipping point, but we can't go. We can't be um, complacent. We can't think that somebody else is going to do it, right? And so there is a lot of information out there now about what can I do as an individual. And I think you know, educating ourselves about those, supporting those institutions and organizations that continue to fight the good fight. I think will be important.
6: Yeah, yeah. Yes, Sherry, I think
7: that your point is is right on is right on the mark. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that without the rioting that occurred in Minneapolis and the noise and and uprising around the country, that the charges on all four of those people would not have happened, right? The problem is that's not sustainable, right? You can't have a riot every single time to get the justice that's required. But the mentality of the country has to change. I think what Franklin Templeton did with that woman, Amy Cooper, once that video surfaced about her Calling 911 on the black man in Central Park, like she was put on leave at 8 a.m. and she was gone by 2 p.m. That is what people are gonna recognize, and that is what's gonna be like the change agent. Is that there has to be like a a a, a leprosy sort of view towards that, like a like you like an outcast shun type of behavior, socially and economically, like, head, you know, companies, conglomerates have to look at the police brutality records of municipalities before they decide they're going to put a headquarters there to, to, to sort of bring in tax revenue and jobs. Like that's the type of stuff that is going to make the longstanding difference. And it's going to force police chiefs and mayors to hold their people accountable because it's going to be for the well-being being economically uh, of, of, of those you know those cities in those regions. That, that's kind of how it has to be, get done. So I like what Franklin, Franklin Templeton did. That's the role model, and everybody else needs to step up and do the same thing.
0: Corey, I think that that's such an important point because it really ties in with a question that uh, Meredith Moss had asked me to ask, and I think that you're helping address it. Meredith, you could, if you could unmute yourself and uh, ask the question that you wanted to ask. I think that would be great.
5: Yeah, thanks, Chris and and everyone um, for caring so deeply. Um, how The question for the panelists is, how are we as HBSers uniquely positioned to create impact and is there something that we can do to coalesce around Um, as a class to support this effort and to come up with some really concrete actions that we can take. We're in uniquely powerful positions and privileged positions um, in our industries and on the planet. Um, Can we translate to some action that goes beyond storytelling and um, beyond sort of the the in, um, not tolerating the behavior to changing power structures in our companies and in our communities. Can we can we come like is there some? Can we take this forward to come up with some some concrete steps? And, and perhaps it's not in this panel, but but how would we? But maybe it is. Like why why would we not use this time together to really marshal our forces for something that will um, last beyond. Uh, you know, beyond this issue being in the news? Yeah,
3: you know, first of all, I I mean, if if you guys haven't read Stacey Abrams' um, op-ed in the New York Times, you know, about voting, please, please, please vote and think through, because I think to your point, it's like, it's not enough just to protest. It's not just enough to be outraged. It's not just enough to be angry to right now. It is the systematic infrastructure that has been put in place and that goes to our judicial systems you know again i'm a amy mcgrath <laughs> supporter um to to others but i think you know when you look at the micro level you know at a, at a company level um you know one of the things that i was dead sent when i was at open table which was change our diversity structure and and it started with you know kind of reorienting our entire recruiting process you know and and you know like for example the rooney rule does not work you know, one diverse person means that they become the diversity candidate. And their odds of actually getting hired are zero. Whereas if you put two diverse candidates in the next, just two, their odds of getting hired go up 80% because now they're, you know, a candidate among many. And I think that, you know, so sort of really, really breaking down, you know, again, we all have different power in each of our own respective, I think, domains. And I think it's a question of looking at your own domain and saying, okay, what power do I have to have influence and to change and to really hold yourself and others accountable? Because now we're, we're, we're kind of in the cream of our leadership careers right now. And I think it's if you don't take the opportunity, who will? And I think it's once you get to the top of the game, you get to change the rules of the game. And everybody needs to be in a position to go do that. It's not that you can, you have to. Like, you, it is your obligation now because of by virtue of the power that you've been given so i'd be curious to think of you know what ideas people have at a collective level for this group but but i do think that there are ways that you can look at your diversity and your hiring and everything that you're doing inside your corporations to actually make really meaningful change and in a very short period of time we 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 changed uh in in a quarter Uh, you know, how, how diverse our outcomes were in terms of hiring. And then we made sure that people felt like they belonged once they were there. So I I think that'd be a a good question also for, for this group. So
2: I just, I just entered into this chat. Um, There's a link and it's, you know, it's a little provocative in terms of the name, 75 things white people can do, but it's really anyone can do, because I'm going to take a look at that list. It is exhaustive. It's comprehensive. It's there are going to be things that you agree with or there are things that you don't agree with. Um, you know, they include such things as, you know, don't buy from companies that use prison labor, right? I mean, there's there's just all kinds of things that you can do as an individual and as a community and as a collective. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to think about what can we do individually and then what can we do um, that is systemic, right? And I do think starting with the polls and the voting and getting the right individuals in to positions of of, of political power that align with our values is the first part, right? Um, So from a collective perspective, in terms of a class, we could think about how do we engage on an effort um, to to get the vote out, right? And it's regardless of whatever your political persuasion is, we just need more people to actually um, exercise their their political power.
4: Yeah, maybe just (laughs) to ask, uh, sorry. I think that Krista said, uh, for all of us that are working, I mean, the chance to just impact the culture of our workplace, its practices, but also in the communities around our companies, you know. Uh, you know, We're trying to push people to volunteer a lot because I, I keep telling employees, don't expect a great community if you don't invest time in your community. And so we are helping by giving you know, time on the payroll for people to just volunteer. Uh, and it's both, you know, doing things together, but also doing things that is very, uh, in energizing to somebody, uh, even though it's not something that we at the company really care about, that's the point. I think what Corey just said is super important, and I've not thought about it. I was taking a note, you know, you know, Moderna is in two locations. I have no idea of a police record on brutality, and I'm going to go check it out, and I want to make sure every time we set a new site. So I think if there's a way to maybe share best practices like this or ideas like this, because I've never heard that one, uh, I think that would be that would be very powerful. The other thing is voting, which again. Not being American is just crazy for me. Why are we voting on a weekday? So what can we do at companies to give a day off, or to give you know, half a day off for people to go vote? You know, in my home country, you vote on Sundays because you know people are not working on Sundays so they can have their right and they don't feel obliged to go to work because they need a paycheck or they're paid by the hour. It's just crazy. So what can we do in our community just to make it easy for our teams?
0: Now, one thing I wanna mention is, obviously, we're dealing with this terrible pandemic. We're doing this virtually, but I feel so wonderfully close to classmates right now, having everyone here, having so much engagement. And because of this pandemic, we've set up tools like the Slack instance that most of you are members of. Like before, there was no easy way to gather everyone together who was interested in working on these justice issues. But if someone wants to, they can create a Team 2000 for justice on Slack, create a channel, ask people to join, and then people will be able to coordinate across sections beyond just the individual groups of friends and really have the class as a whole work together towards achieving some of these things, sharing those best practices as you described, reinforcing each other, sharing things, just like we're doing in the Zoom group chat right now. So I would encourage people who are interested in this to think about how we can use the infrastructure we've set up for this reunion to continue this process going forward. Awesome. So w- the, uh, the next thing, again, we're probably gonna run a little over and you guys should feel free to leave whenever the te- whenever we hit the end of the point. Uh, but the other part is, of course, we're dealing with somehow two of the greatest crises that have ever hit us. Crisis number one is the police brutality in the United States, but that's primarily a United States issue. Most of us are US citizens, but guess what? There is a tremendous international contingent. Well all of us are being affected by this terrible COVID-19 pandemic. And I've actually gotten some requests in the chat room privately saying, you know, I would really like to hear about what it's like to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, and what are the things that we can think about going forward. Now, I want to point out, we are not going to post this to YouTube or anything. This is not a public forum. So whatever you want to say, you can say.
4: This is for (laughs) me. So, uh, we were clearly uh, not thinking this was going to happen. We've been partnering with the NIH, with Fauci's team, and with the Army for uh, a few years, uh, believing that all technology, because of its speed, could one day be helpful in the case of an outbreak. And so, you know, early in the year, as I'm scanning the news, I see you know this new virus in China. Um, Email directly to the NIH. What is it? They don't know. And so after a few days, they know it's not flu. They still don't know what it is. And then a few days after, we realized it's a new corona. And we got the sequence posted online. So literally, you know, the the genetic information on the computer available online. And our team with NIH started just racing for it. Um, That was January 11. It was posted online. By the 13th, in two days, the team had developed a vaccine. They were done with research. And they were flying to our factory in Norwood, Mass, to start making the vaccine for the clinical trial. And it has been racing this virus since then. Uh, if you had told me, you know, on January first, uh, by May you'll be in phase two, you'll be planning your phase three in July, <laughs> what, are you, what are you thinking about? What what did you just smoke? It just there's no way, just impossible. And what has been remarkable, I, I think, is the the, the engagement uh, first within the company. I mean, people have been working twenty twenty four, you know, uh, are they crazy, pulling all night working seven days a week. Sometimes with a team, we joke, you know, when we get on Zoom in the morning, say, what day is it today? Because we literally have been running since January 11, uh, And we've been running against this virus because we know, uh, once he, he, I mean, it really became clear to me, uh, the week of January 20th, I happened to be in Davos uh, that week, and I was talking to two key epidemiologists, who were sharing with me literally on their phone or showing me their phone with data coming out of China, things that were not public. And it was very clear at the time yeah. that given the R0 was very high. Now you know all know what R0 is, you know. A year ago, I was R0, see what he's talking about. Um, because it was so high, and because Wuhan had so many flights coming out of Wuhan, going to all the big cities around the world every day, that if the cat was out of the bag, it was gonna be a pandemic. a pretty bad one. Um, so i have been racing uh The collaboration has been fantastic within the company, but also outside the company. Uh, Sometimes we talk to FDA three times a day. You know, usually the normal process to develop a product is you send a a polite request and there's a process where 30 days or 60 days after they're going to meet with you. And sometimes they ask you more questions at that next meeting and you keep going and and that's why sometimes it's so long. I mean, now it's crazy. We literally will send them an email at six in the morning. At 6.30 we have a response. We'll get on the Zoom at seven. You know, We work an hour or two and we go back. And that's just been, the cycle has been just fantastic. It's totally exhausting. I mean, I worry about the team's ability to keep the distance. Uh, as Fauci has said, the kind of earliest we could have a vaccine is toward the end of the year, which if it happens will be kind of uh, something that we, none of us thought was even possible. Uh, but that's what it has been, just running after this thing. Uh, Brenda has been amazing because literally she brings me breakfast at my office at six in the morning. And at noon, she comes and she brings me lunch and she brings me dinner. I've actually been sitting on that chair for, I think, six months. Um, And that's why it has been just being very focused on just saving every day, pushing the team to be very creative. Say, okay, how do we do do it differently? How do we do it differently, both within our walls, but in collaboration with the FDA, with the NIH, with uh, Dr. Fauci's team, uh, with the CDC. So that's been kind of a a remarkable, remarkable journey. It's a bit crazy. Sometimes I just forget that we're in the middle of it because I'm so focused on getting this thing moving that sometimes, you know, I hear stuff about the company and something like that because I'm just so into it. That's the thing that's the most surprising to me. Sometimes people ask me, you know, are you worried? Are you anxious? I mean, I'm like, no, I'm just focusing on this damn vaccine.
0: So this has been an incredible sort of look behind the scenes and I'm just amazed. I didn't realize that it took two days from when the sequence was posted for you to have your first vaccine, which is a tremendous testament to your technology and to the dedication of your people. Uh, One of the questions that somebody asked me to ask you is, you know, all of these companies are creating vaccines. I understand there's a hundred different vaccines in clinical trials are going to, are we going to end up with one vaccine to rule them all to just for you Lord of the Rings fans out there, or is it going to be multiple vaccines? What's this going to play out like?
4: Yeah, I think we'll end up with a few vaccines. Actually, I pray every day that we're going to end up with a few vaccines because no company in the world can make 8 billion doses. No, but no Pfizer, no AstraZeneca, nobody. And so the last thing, trust me, I want is that only Moderna makes it to the finish line because the the political pressure, the ethical pressure will just be incredible. So I really hope this doesn't happen. So I think we'll end up with a few vaccines. Uh, I mean, the way I think about it is I think there are three companies that have a shot at it in the first wave, which is AstraZeneca with Oxford University, uh, Pfizer, and Moderna. Uh, Some of the other companies that are not in a clinic yet. I think they're just too behind to have an impact. And then you need manufacturing scale. If you can make a million doses per year, that might be super cool, but it's not going to help a lot of people outside the city. Um, And so this is why we did this big partnership with the Swiss company Lonza to get up to a billion doses per year capacity. Uh, And so our team are really racing to just buying capital and buying raw materials and, and just kind of building the manufacturing infrastructure as the clinical team is pushing the vaccine in the clinic as fast as we can. Uh, the second wave, I think you have a Johnson & Johnson, which is kind of six months behind the first wave. And then you have Sanofi, uh, the French company, that's six months behind it with a very proven technology. The piece where I think we are lucky is two things. First, it's not a very complex virus. Just think about it. HIV was discovered in the early 80s. That's kind of almost 40 years ago. We still don't have a vaccine against HIV because the biology is so complicated. So one thing we've got kind of lucky is that this virus is not too complicated from a biology standpoint. And the other piece, I try to tell my friends when they are kind of you know upset about the lockdown and something, think about it. Most of the children are okay. Think about the hysteria this will be. Eh? If we'll be losing as many children as we'll be losing the elderly. Think about the worry it will be if we say one in 10 k will be gone in a year from now. Think about your kids, your nieces, nephews. We are so lucky this is not the case. I know there are a few cases of a few autoimmune disease. And of course, every kid's matter, But think about what happened a hundred years ago when it was the Spanish flu. They were losing as many children as they are losing the elderly. Because the immune system in both population is is much weaker than healthy adults. So while this is super unpleasant, uh, we should all kind of uh, be thankful that this could have been much worse. It could have been a virus that most of us will tell you. I mean, think about Fauci getting on TV and say, I don't think we can make a vaccine in the next 10 years for this thing. Uh, It's bad. But let's always look at the, at the nice side of things. It is not as bad as it could have been.
2: Stefan, I have a quick question based on that. What's the timing? So we hear from certain leaders that it's January, but we hear from others, you know, medical scientists that it's more closer to March. I mean, what, what are you seeing? What, how quick do you think this will come out?
4: So the best case scenario, and I think that's where people get confused on, on which scenario, because as we know, life is not one thing that you imagine about the future. Uh, the best case scenario, if everything continues to go right, is we could have the ability to file to the FDA for an approval toward the end of the year. That's the best case scenario. If we start the phase three in July, same as AstraZeneca, I think is in the July time frame. I think Pfizer is a, is a, is a month also behind us. So if, if the company starts in the summer of phase three, and we do them very, very large, like 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people, just to, to figure out the efficacy. So it's going to be placebo control. So people are going to be getting water, people are going to get the vaccine, to figure out do the vaccine protect people from disease, because that's what we of course care about. And because nobody knows really where in September and October where are the attack rate is going to be is it going to be in Texas or in New York. So we just need sites around the country and powered enough in terms of numbers so that if you only have an outbreak in San Francisco or Boston or New York or Texas, you will have enough cases locally to be able to see between your placebo control and people getting the real vaccine, how efficacious is a vaccine. Because that's the only thing we care about. And then you will get safety database for the entire country. Because all the people who have gotten the vaccine, you will know about the safety of a vaccine. You will not know in that population, the efficacy of a vaccine, but you will know it from the place where you have infection. And so the best case scenario is toward the end of the year, we can the first wave of companies can submit. Their data to the FDA. We're gonna do it very quickly. Usually it really takes a year to approve a product from submitting the data. There's an accelerated approval that is six months. Uh, but there's a process where you can start filing all your data as you get them. So kind of true you know collaboration with the agency. Like you get data, you just ship it around to the FDA. So we can start to review the data of all the cases and getting the manufacturing process approved as well, which is very important for quality and safety. Uh, so, the, the, the joke in my team is how many days are they going to take to approve it? Because usually it's six months, six months is the bare minimum from when you submit your last data to when they say yes, you can, everybody can use your vaccine. And I think it's going to be days, uh, which seem totally science fiction, but I think they have no choice. I mean, just think about it. I don't know who is going to be in the White House at the end of the year or in But in January. Uh, and they're going to be asking every day of a commissioner, is it approved yet? Is it appropriate? Because it's going to be so much political and societal pressure. The piece where it might be a bit earlier is what is called an emergency use authorization, which is a special part of FDLO FDA law that is uh, at the discretion of the agency, is would they let uh, some of the companies using the vaccine? And again, distribution will be done by the CDC. It will not be done by companies. Basically, we will ship vaccine, if we get emergency approval, to the CDC, and they will decide which which state, which city, which hospital. We could think about a world where you could start getting it to some healthcare workers uh, in the fall, uh, maybe some nursing homes in the fall, because we've seen it when it goes into a nursing home, it's like a petri dish, it's just awful. Uh, and because in the fall, what you're going to have, you're going to have the phase one and phase two data where you're going to see the neutralizing antibody, which is do you make in humans the good antibody that's bind and prevent the virus from multiplying inside your body. So that's super important. We have all the animal data, and unlike in oncology, when in oncology, animal data don't tell you much, because a mouse doesn't have cancer, like a human has cancer. But in infectious disease, the translation from animal to human is actually very high. And so if you show in non-human primate that if you vaccinate them and then give them a very high dose of a virus, that they don't get disease, that's a very good indication of benefits. And so if you can show in human, you can show neutralizing antibodies, the good antibodies, and you can show benefit in animals, there's a sense that there could be benefit in the vaccine. And by the the end of the summer, you're going to have several thousand people already dosed in the phase three, and you will have safety data. So when you triangulate all those data, a bit like we do an evaluation, looking at a few methods, you can say, do I want, you know, 400 million Americans to get the vaccine? Maybe it's too early. But do you want, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers, if they desire to get the vaccine, that it can be proposed to them, It would be, of course, their personal decision. But so you can share the data with them and you can get them more informed than the general population who doesn't always understand the science. So I think this is kind of a best case scenario is we could have emergency use from a couple companies in the fall to protect our healthcare workers and some of our nursing homes. And then approval the potentially at the end of the year, maybe Q1 or early January, February next year. Uh, but we, I think we are going, into, going to be into a complicated fall and winter because As Fauci said, there's a high probability this is coming back.
0: Got it. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that we could barrage you with questions for the next two hours, Stéphane, and and people would still have more. Uh, So I'll just ask one question that had come through. And then I also want to hear about the impact of this pandemic on higher education, on restaurants and consumer packaged goods as well. Uh, The question is, we all see things in the headlines. Is the science proceeding without political pressure? In other words, is there political pressure that is affecting the science or is science being conducted in the right way and we're feeling like it's going to be good?
4: Uh, I'll I'll speak at least from what I see. From what I see, there's no political pressure. The pressure we have, we put it on ourselves is because we're raising this virus. We know that every day we're going to be late, people are going to die. We lost a 1,000 Americans yesterday. Uh, Look at the number of people we've lost so far. And what we don't know about this virus, because it's still new, is what have a long-term side effect that some, you know, subpopulation, because of, you know, gene pool, because of comorbidity, will have in 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, It has been shown that the virus, you know, starts, of course, in your lung. It's a respiratory virus, but sometimes attacks your heart, your kidneys. Uh, So even somebody who survives a virus, if you get, you know, a big kidney attack or a big attack from a virus on their heart during their, their ICU stay, they might have a massive impact on just their life expectancy and the quality of life. And so, so, so that's why we so need so bad to protect people. And that's why we're raising the virus. We have no political pressure. I don't know about Tony Fauci, you need to ask him. Uh, I'm sure he does have some political pressure, but at the company, we have no political pressure.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's turn our attention to something that's impacting, as you heard from various people in your sections, you know, the ages of children and so on and so forth education and higher education are both being affected by this. Sherry, from your position over at Duke University, what are you seeing happening this fall? What are you seeing as, as what's gonna play out in the world of education?
2: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, it's challenging. Um, so I would say, I, would, I call it higher ed's headwinds <laughs> because you know COVID-19 has definitely created uncertainty, fear, health concerns, their impact on enrollments, on research, on endowments, right? Um, and so all of the aspects of a university's balance sheet is, is, is really um, at risk, to be honest. Um, and so right now, I think at the university level, you're seeing, you're seeing lots of different things happening, but I think they're gonna all converge on, a, on very similar types of paths forward. Um, but right now, most of the priority is around public health and you know, schools are taking into consideration what's happening at the local, as well as the state level in terms of reopening local localities and states and using those guidelines then to determine how they reopen or if they reopen campuses there's this buzzword called densifying that's spreading around that universities are using and it's and they're using it to determine how they reopen so you'll see probably you know still social distancing coming into play at duke we you know the campus is closed no travel no on campus events however in the fall and so you know, our presidents put together two basic task forces and then you, all the schools are doing this. Um, one is the most immediate in the next six, you know, in the next kind of four to six months. What does it look like? How are we going to start the new academic year? And then there's more of a, you know, 10 years down the line, what's going to be the impact, right? Um, because if, if there's this much downward pressure on tuition and enrollments and the revenues that universities um, rely on, then it's going to impact schools for much longer than just this, this academic year. And so you're also starting to see universities uh, tighten their spending. Uh, we're in a hiring freeze. Uh, you know, our president has taken a pay cut. Um, it hasn't hit the lower, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't hit um, other kind of strata of employees. And they're really trying to actually um, uh, make sure that there aren't furloughs, really take care of everyone, doing it in a very decent way. Uh, everyone's working remote. Um, I think another pressure is the nationalist policies that we're seeing coming out of our government um, and that impacts international student access to schools in the U.S., all the anti- anti-immigration policies. For those of you who may or may not know, OPT is at risk at this point. Um, and we're waiting you know any week now to understand what will happen to OPT. And I can tell you if it goes away in the U.S., it is a true game-changer for all institutions, um, both corporate, both industry, as well as higher education. F and J visa holders from China are at risk. There are travel bans, of course, you know, uh, you know people coming into the US, but even more so, um, you know, well, I should say us going to other countries, but even other countries now are, are more concerned about their citizens coming here because we're, we had the highest risk of, of COVID-19. We have the highest number of COVID-19 cases, right? Um, There are also bans um, on uh, commercial airlines to China, visa appointment delays. So all of these headwinds that create so much uncertainty to figure out how will universities generate revenue this year. Um, I was looking at a couple of things, trying to understand what do people think will happen uh, in the future uh, in terms of higher education and the longer-term impacts. And there's a great article, the New York Magazine by James Walsh, in case anyone wants to look it up, I'll send a link and he calls it elite cyberberg universities being developed. Um, and really he talks about the fact that there is disru- there will be disruption, continued disruption in the higher education space. The product, right, will fundamentally shift, which calls into question the value and the cost of higher education. And I know that many of us, our classmates here on this call have children who are either are about to go into college or will soon in a few years or you know are in college now. Um, and so there's a lot of, pressure from I think parents about what is the value that I'm actually paying for now there's separation from those you know there's going to be kind of separation from the credentialing aspects of getting a college degree and the experience of getting a college degree right Uh, downward pressures on tuition as parents push back on the high tuition with students still staying at home and right so folks who are in college they basically closed the school down in the middle of the class year and everyone went online. So students are actually in their parents' homes still in many respects, or had to go back home. And so parents are asking, well, what am I paying for, right? Um, currently universities are trying to hold tight, hold the line on no tuition reductions, um, but that may not be sustainable depending on how long this lasts. Um, you know, I do know that at Duke, some are at least providing refunds or partial refunds or women board costs, student fees, that kind of thing. Um, There will be probably tier two, tier three institutions at risk of going out of business over the longer haul. Um, There is a revenue hit in the short term, but longer term, um, you know, perhaps those who can embrace technology quickly and expand their enrollments will survive. So you know, think about schools in the ranking of 50 to 1,000 ranked schools. Those are the schools that probably will be at risk. Folks, you know, schools like Harvard, schools like Duke, you know, will be fine. Um, However, what you may start seeing as elite universities, at least the brick and mortars aspect of going to an elite university, will, you know, the classes will be filled by the one percenters, right? I mean, only the really wealthy will be able to afford to really continue to in their, their, their children in a bricks and mortars fashion. Um, there could be possible disruption by tech companies. Some are saying that um, you might see more tech companies, you know, big brands, Apple, Google's, partnering with universities to deliver hybrid in online classes and expand enrollment. So, on the one hand, you know there's going to be greater access, I think, to education. But on the other hand, um, you know there's also going to be, I think, some disruption there too. It could be the end of the college experience, campus experience as we know it, right? A new, a new normal to the college experience. I know that at Duke we are looking at a way to try and get back to in-person classes in in September. But it will look very different. It will be, you'll have the option of either coming in person, doing it online, or doing some hybrid, right? So you're going to see, start to see classrooms that are, have both students sitting in them, but fewer students because of this dedensifying densifying that has to happen, as well as they're sitting in a classroom and they have their classmates also online at the same time. So you have synchronous education and synchronous um, instruction with asynchronous, so both at the same time. Um, uh, so, you know, go ahead. No I was going to, I, was, I thought you were done, but please continue. No, I was going to say that um, you know because on the one hand you have great you may have greater access to education because of the, the opportunity that an online experience provides, more people can access it. Um, what you will have though at the same time is a reduction in, in what we call kind of the humanity, right uh, That whole experience of being uh, you know, in college, you're you're expanding your horizons, you're um, filling on those social um, skills and norms, Um, that will look very different. And so you're finding that many students are opting to take a gap year or asking for more deferrals. Uh, uh, For those of you who are on on Nitin's opening remarks, you saw that HBS had offered a um, deferral for anyone who wanted to do it and 200 people took them up on it. the class size for HBS this coming year will be 700 versus our 900 plus right in our class. And so you see parents and people opting to say, you know what, let me take a hiatus this year until a vaccine comes out or until we can understand what social distancing looks like a year from now. Um, and this is really putting downward pressures on the enrollments too, right? Because universities can't afford for no one to fill their classes. Um, and so, yeah, so I mean, I worry a little bit. I think there will be more access to, you might also actually, actually see students taking like more community college classes in this, you know, you know, go to community college for a year or two and then transition into a four year as opposed to taking all four years. Because if everything's online, what are you kind of paying for? And you only have to pay for two years of a, of a four year degree. Um, that actually happened for a mentor of mine, mentee of mine who got into Dartmouth undergrad, and she got into Howard and she uh, actually, Howard allowed her to transfer in um, two years, you know, as a junior in, in college. And so she, instead of you know, taking her, um, she had got she scholarship at Dartmouth, but she decided to decline Dartmouth and go to Howard because she could actually go in as a junior, that's two years of college and she graduates, early and that's less that's less cost for her and her and her family right and so you're going to see people you know making different decisions based on value and cost than they would before on the other hand i think there will be more opportunities for greater access to elite colleges right with um, enrollments down people in schools going to wait list people who otherwise may not have gotten into certain schools will find that they get offers and so again there i think they're going to be winners they're going to be losers and um you know, just a great deal of uncertainty at this point.
0: Many thanks. Wow, this is great insight. I just want to point out we are over time, but we're going to keep going. Anybody who feels like they need to drop out, even if you're a panelist, you can. But I know that I certainly want to keep going. Uh, And I'm also going to cold call someone, because we have in the audience our classmate Alex Cortez, who is actually on the Massachusetts Board of Higher Education. I'm curious from a policy perspective, not from a university perspective, what you see happening in education.
6: Yeah, no, thank you, great to see everyone, and and I'm mostly gonna build on on Sherry's wisdom, but I I spent most of my career in K-12. The last couple years, I've now joined the State Board of Higher Education in Massachusetts, and it turns out there's an education system even less accountable for results than K-12, it's higher ed. The simple reality is higher education, other than um, financial health and competitive rankings for the top three or 400 schools who are competitive, higher ed has very little accountability. I think that was on its way to changing. And just to name it, I mean, I think we're there was sort of a 10-year crisis revolution coming, I think it's coming in September, but, you know, higher ed wasn't doing such a great job before COVID-19. I mean, just to name it, there is conventional wisdom that that a higher education degree is a is requirement for economic mobility, and that's generally true, but that, that higher education pathway to economic mobility was neither as effective nor as equitably applied as a lot of conventional wisdom. So, that higher education bump is about a million dollars a year in lifetime earnings between a high school and college degree. But that's not equal for ethnicity, for gender. It's not equal by degree, what you study matters. It's not equal by institution, where you go matters. Um, and, and we were at a point where I think increasingly costs have gone up, debt has gone up. Debt for non-completers is a lifetime burden debt for completers is a lifetime i mean of the 1.6 trillion in debt held for higher ed 150 billion of it's held by people over 50. Um, and if you never pay your debt off or you go into default it will be eventually garnished from your social security Um, i think more students were wondering if higher ed was worth it more employers were and there are all these new competitive currencies competing with conventional higher ed, including a whole bunch of really interesting businesses like general assembly Sherry's point about um, organizations going right to universities and and companies saying we're going to train people in-house. And so, of course, now we have COVID-19. And I I actually think higher ed's in a lot of trouble and a lot of people want to sort of put off hard decisions. But to Sherry's point, we have, you know, international students are 1.1 million students out of almost 17 million. I think a lot of them won't come back. Recent surveys are as many as 30 percent won't return. You know, based on the Trump administration, maybe some subset or all of the 350,000 students from China may not be admitted. Second, a whole lot of people just lost their ability to pay for college. And for many people who are modest to lower income, it was already debatable if all that debt they were taking out was going to actually really pay off. Um, third, there are a whole lot of people who can't afford college. To Sherry's point, they're going to take a year or two off. I mean, so usually 3% of students take gap years right now. Surveys are tracking towards 16%. percent um, fourth, if you're gonna be taking online courses next year, you know someone sent me a meme, annual subscription, Netflix, $108. Annual subscription, Disney Plus, $70. Annual subscription, University of Wisconsin, $40,000. If you're basically gonna be stuck doing an online program next year, you might wanna pursue the online program that's sort of better because it was designed for online and probably a lot cheaper. And maybe you know, you'll wanna still think about the brand equity of your degree, but if you can take a semester a year off, take cheaper courses somewhere else, unbundle all those college experiences and get them through other resources. And again, you look at startups like Chegg and others who are providing um, mentoring and tutoring. If you're a college student, you might start to unbundle all those things that your your college can't provide. Um, And then last, there are all those competitive currencies. um, And and there's a longer list and I can share it with folks. If there are so many people who are gonna wanna get to or get back to work, if there are credentialing programs, training programs that get you to work, faster and more cheaply than a two or four year degree, I think they're gonna gobble up market share. So to Sherry's point, I think the elites will be okay. they I mean, as of April, University of Virginia was already going into its wait list because no one's yield models make any sense anymore. And everyone's would rather have too many students and too little and everyone's terrified of too few. I think there are a whole bunch of non-elite private schools. There, there are a couple thousand of them. Many of them are gonna be in real trouble because they weren't providing great value. If they can't open physically, You know, um, they're not going to get any money from their residence halls or cafeterias or or any of the other things that actually are pretty decent moneymakers for schools. People are not going to be interested in in shitty online, or if they are, they're going to want to pay a whole lot less. So I think there's going to be a whole lot of private schools that are going to be in real trouble. And we're going to see a wave who like do everything they can to attract students. And then come October, they're going to be illiquid without bailouts or mergers. I think we're going to see another wave in December and we're going to see more come next, next June. And the tragedy is those schools ought to be where people don't go, but they're gonna take risks because the leadership of those schools will take risks. And the people who, who, who suffer when those risks don't pay off will be the students. Um, but I do think it, it will provide real pressure for, for schools to finally start showing their value. And so there are these increasing measures of school value and it's sort of the classic consultant two by two, but if you're running an institution or you're a policymaker, you're gonna start asking which of the things you're doing are financially viable and actually creating value, grow those, the ones that are creating a lot of value but are subsidized, see if you can get them to break even or at least know you're subsidizing. But then all your programs are basically losing money and not creating value. You gotta make some real hard choices about consolidating or closing. And in the past, people have been reluctant to do it because they haven't had that financial pressure. That financial pressure is now here. And I do think for folks who are interested in business models that will help people get trained to workforce opportunities, They absolutely could thrive in this market and put a lot of pressure on conventional higher ed, which will either need to change to to survive, nonetheless thrive. But I have no opinion on the matter otherwise.
0: By the way, the chat room has noticed that perhaps Alex wasn't surprised by the call. Uh, He did reach out to me and I did say that uh, I thought that would be very valuable to get his input. So thank you so much. Uh, that it would be remarkable if you delivered that without any warning
6: although i could very well believe it uh, well, first so, first, i have it all in powerpoint i am a recovering <laughs> consultant <laughs> so we've talked about a, a lot of great
0: stuff here we've talked about the, the the medical side we've talked about the educational side now let's talk about the consumer side the parts of our lives that have changed so much krista obviously you're super familiar with the restaurant industry you're also now really familiar with diapers and adult diapers and all these other things from your position on the board of Kimbo and Clark. Tell us what the hell is going on out there and what we can expect to see in the future.
5: Uh,
3: yeah, no, um, you know, it's funny. COVID has is, is not necessarily been so much of a change agent rather than an accelerant on a lot of trends that we've already been seeing. And I think as people have pointed out with the higher education uh, changes and accelerations that have been going on. Um, yes, I am on the board of Kimberly Clark and yes, we do um, sell diapers. Uh, curiously, actually, in Asia, we didn't have the same stockpiling behavior that Americans demonstrated. So I'm not sure if that shows um, a more evolved thinking uh, relative to, you know, Americans kind of, you know, pulling all the toilet paper off the shelf. But 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 absent that, I mean, I think what we've observed is a couple things. One, you know, the impact to the SMB uh, small medium businesses are almost half of the employment in America and in the last you know couple of months we've seen a you know drop in services spend by i think it was like 3 trillion dollars on an annualized basis and so it's been devastating for the small businesses that have been out there obviously restaurants Uh, very significantly impacted restaurants are the second largest employer in the United States after the U.S. government. So this is a huge deal. I think the fact is, you know, we've got 40 million unemployed Americans. Uh, You know, I guess it got slightly better this week, but um, we've never seen that kind of velocity rip through our economy in our lifetimes. So needless to say, this is uh, kind of upending a a lot of, you know, kind of issues that we're all seeing. I think we have Um, kind of a temporary bubble right at this minute um, with both PPP and uh, unemployment. So you've got this Window of time where people are still not devastated by their own personal income statements and balance sheets, uh, but I mean, you you you, you know you, we're going to kind of hit a, an end point here in August, I think, unless you know kind of our, our our government re-ups, which they have said that they potentially could do in the July timeframe. Um, but it's interesting, you know, just anecdotally, I'm also on the board of um, a point of sale lending company called Affirm. It's uh, from the founders of Max Levchin and the founders of PayPal, and you know, they're um, you know the almost every Peloton bike gets financed through them. Uh, they work with Wayfair, and so you just see these really radical trends. Where uh, you know, I think Instacart has also shown that they're processing their twenty twenty five model today, and so and all of a sudden, everybody's figuring out what they can do in a remote slash online way, and you know the the, the acceleration of e-commerce trends and habits are, are, are quite typical, but I think the bigger issue goes back to, you know, my, my hairstylist has to put his hands on my body in order to conduct, uh, you know, uh, you know, a highlight here. Uh, I still don't know what my real hair color is, but, um, but, but I think, you know, it's, it's most of our small businesses have only like 30 days of working capital. And, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens as a result of this. I think, you know, we've, you know, at open table estimated 25% of restaurants won't make it. It's probably even less than that. But then, you know, the broader impact to, you know, real estate and what's going to happen if, you know, companies no longer come into work all the time. And, and so I think the economic impacts are just being understood. And the longer you slow down an economy, the longer it takes to speed it back up. And, 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 and I think it's, it's pretty worrisome. I'm, you know, I'm also on the board of, uh, no kid hungry, which is you know trying to end childhood hunger in America. And you know, today, you know, seven million California kids can't get lunch because of, you know, COVID. And so, you know, I think that we we've you know talked a lot about our physical health, but there's, you know, the financial health, our mental health, our emotional health, and, and I think all of these things need to be tended to. And the reverberation from all this is is going to be pretty long lasting
0: awesome other thoughts that people might have please feel free to chime in people are asking uh from deep our good friend deep nishar uh is kimberly clark making enough toilet paper can we relax
3: <laughs> um they are a thing you know although you know they've been at only like 35 stock in uh, so, I mean, it's it's been tough. I mean, I think it's also demonstrated challenges in our, our logistics uh, infrastructure. And and I think this is happening, you know, how globalized we all were uh, and how, you know, just moving, you know, atoms from point to point is is pretty hard and especially in the middle of a pandemic. And so, you know, I think the number one thing that all companies are focused on is how do we make sure that our employees are safe, uh, that they're able to continue to kind of operate and then, you know, move, moving beyond, but, you know, having been in a tissue mill, uh, you know, thankfully there aren't that many people that are needed to run, to run one of them.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, uh, first of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change my virtual background in your honor Ah. (laughs) to make sure that I'm conveying the message. But second, I'm going to turn things back over to Lindsay, because we've talked a lot about All the things that are happening in the world today, but this is still a day for us to celebrate our time together at HBS, the community we're in, and I thought one of the great ways to end, Lindsay, would be for us to think a little bit about how we take this full circle, how our time at HBS is informing our lives today.
1: So as I mentioned briefly when we were getting started, one of the things that I'm struck by when I reflect on HBS is that the things that I remember, both personally and professionally, aren't necessarily the ones that I would have anticipated that I would remember. So I think we're curious, or I'm curious, and hopefully others are curious, about in both your professional and your personal lives, what it is you find yourself remembering, relying on, reflecting on, you know, ways in which 20 years later the HBS experience stays with you.
2: I'll start, so that I don't have to be the last word. (laughs) Um, I think professionally, it's interesting 20 years later, I feel like I still and even more so use my, the things that we learned in business school even more so in this role, and I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. I fell into higher ed, fell into admissions, um, and it's one of those jobs that I absolutely love every day. Getting up, making an impact, making dreams come true is what we like to say in our office. But it's a business, right? It's, at, especially in times like this, when I think about we are at the forefront driving revenues for higher education in universities. I mean, it's the admissions offices, right? Who bring in the enrollments. And so, and leading a team of 30, and it's just, you know, all the organizational leadership, the motivation, getting things done through others. I mean, all the things that we learned and we didn't necessarily think that they'd be valued. Um, they are so much more um, front and center in terms of I leverage those particular skills every single day. And the hardest part is keeping my team motivated and doing what's best for them and advocating for resources for my team. And especially during these very difficult times where everyone's working remotely and everyone has, you know, their children that they have to also manage while they're also managing work. And it's the same format, Zoom. So it's Zoom fatigue. So we're all struggling in a way that I think um, causes, you know, uh, imp- implies that we need to be more empathetic. We, I need to be, I need to kind of take and dust off those organizational leadership books that we read. And I use those much, much more. And I have to say, I'm really proud to be an HBS alum because the work that HBR, the content and the intellectual information and thought leadership that's coming out of that um, um, is, is a phenomenal. And I rely on it daily. Personally, what I reflect on, other the relationships, um, you know, I know that we all are going through challenges. Um, we've lost loved ones, and and you know, we have loved ones who are who are you know challenged health wise. And I recall my relationships with friends who were there for me when I lost my mother shortly after we graduated. And in particular, I'm going to call out three people um, who are dear friends of mine, and we don't get a chance to see each other very often. But they came to Indianapolis, Indiana, and um, were there for me, and that's um, Sejal, uh, Deanna, and Laurel, um, and then uh, countless other friends who uh, who have just been there throughout the years. I remember the the treks, right, in um, OBA, and who who did the trek for us uh, for the Africa Business Club, and we lost him very early on. And so those relationships, those re- memories, that's really what sticks to, for me. And that's really what's most valuable, especially in these times when I can um, think back on those relationships and, and they give me sustenance and, um, and they give me nourishment.
4: Okay, so I think on the professional side, it's the thing that really amazed me the most at HBS was, you know, you sit in the class and you think you have the case pretty good figured out and then you see so many different points of views, and you learn so much from others that have had different experience, different education, different personalities. And that's what I really try to always use, you know, in a workplace, which is listen to every voices, you know, ask questions. Uh, and that's the piece that I kind of cherish the most from the time we were together. Uh, on the personal front, it's easy. I mean, I'm super lucky. I mean, I have an amazing uh, marriage and. My wife was introduced to me, Brenda, by Cindy, Cindy Gayton, And so there's almost every day when I look at Brenda, I think about Cindy and it brings me back to HBS. So thank you, Cindy.
3: Yeah, I would just bring it to the personal. Um, you know, when I think being a, a woman in business sometimes... It's, you know, you feel very lonely and, you know, one of the things we've done out here on the West Coast anyway is, you know, I think it was about a year ago now, um, we got a bunch of uh, women in, in uh, from our year and we all gathered together to talk about, I think it was like women, money, power, sex, I don't even know what we all chatted about, um, but then we continued it and, and Margot hosted a thing at her house and um, Beezer had Dana uh, Gregg come and talk to us about, you know, finance. And I think it is the power of connection and the network. And I think it's it's honestly for me one of those things that I miss the most in these COVID times is, you know, we're connected, but not connected. And so I want to (laughs) neurobiologically see all of you and and connect with you at at the most basic human level. And again, and and I think that it is the power of our network and the power of our collective and the power of the connection that comes when we, when we gather. And so I want to also thank you, Chris, for always being the, the one who's the gathering agent and the catalyst to put us together. And I think, you know, it's just How do we take this moment in time of 2020 and say, hey, this is a a wake up call on so many different levels. And so let's get still and get thoughtful and go act.
0: Awesome. Well, everyone, we ran way, way over, but I'm proud to say that we had over 200 people attend this panel. We still have over 180 people on the line as we speak. And I think it's just a testament both to our incredible panelists and a big virtual round of applause for our panelists for a phenomenal content. A huge thanks to my partner in crime, Lindsay. Another big shout out to the HBS staff who helped us organize all this. Don't forget, reunion isn't over yet. There's still time for you to get together in the cross section gatherings. So you can find those Zoom rooms there. Uh, I know that there's gonna be follow ups after this as well. One of the things I just want to emphasize again for all of you who have signed up for the Slack, and I think most of you have something that Stan Reese set up, sign up for the Slack because it will be a way for all of us to stay in touch with each other on an ongoing basis. It doesn't have to be every five years that we gather together and make this happen. We can continue to bring this community together on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And as leaders of the new millennium, we can use that togetherness to have a massive impact in the world. So with that, I want to thank everyone for coming in. Thank you so much for participating, panelists. And I want to release you to go off to your cross-section gathering. So huge thanks to all.
6: Thank you, Thank you, all of you. Thanks, everybody.
0: It's great. Hey, Dan, by the way, we're we're out of the official part. I just want to mention, I hope everyone caught Dan Streetman on Conan (laughs) O'Brien.
7: Yeah. Yeah, uh, So far,
0: I think everybody has. It's it's good. But yeah, it's still available. As my son reminds me, it's still out there on YouTube. We haven't figured out how to take it
6: down yet.
2: Yeah, link please. As someone
6: yeah. said, link please. Link, link, link. Yeah. Yeah,
0: hurry up. Someone look that up. Rajiv, <laughs> thank you. Shout outs to everyone who participated. All your questions. Everything that's going on. Again, I don't know if they're bothering to record this. They don't happen, but guess they are. Wow. I better not say anything scurrilous. <laughs> uh, but uh, again, I just want to just take a moment. As long as we're here, to thank the entire reunion committee. Uh, I know Tom Arnold has done so much work in bringing us together. So people are like, oh wow, thank you. Chris and Lindsay for organizing this panel. I'm like, you know, Tom Arnold has literally done 10 times as much work to make sure that this reunion actually happens. So, huge thanks to Tom for all the work he did, all the other members of the reunion committee as well. I mentioned Uh, A couple of other folks who've been deeply involved. Gabe Esparza, especially. Some people gave me credit for this panel. It was Gabe's idea. Gabe and I are classmates at Stanford. We had a class panel there and he said, Hey, we should do this. And then he volunteered me to lead it. So if you guys enjoyed this panel, thank Gabe Esparza for doing that. Stan Reese, as I mentioned, set up the slack. Tom and Stan and Gabe and I have been like just constantly on these various Zooms helping to put together this reunion. So big thanks to them and everyone on this reunion committee and of course uh, to our HBS staff who helped us out. So Christina who is on the line right now has been our rock. She actually was able to come in and help us out because Megan Starkey who was leading this effort is actually at home with her new baby daughter on maternity leave. So big thanks to the HBS staff for helping all of us make this happen. So again, uh, thank you everyone. And let's go ahead and and bring this to a halt so that we can go ahead and let people get onto their cross-section gatherings. But once again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.